Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, I have a dear friend and a brilliant businesswoman, Corrine McCormick. Corrine McCormick, you may recognize her name because at one point, she had her own line of eyewear, which was available in Manhattan boutiques and Bloomingdale's and all over the place. Uh, her line of eyewear got bought out by a major industry leader. Um, but you're going to hear not just about that, but how she started out um, <laughs> very early in Macy's and worked her way up to her own company, uh, creating a multi-million dollar eyewear industry leader. And then she got rid of all of it and she started doing real estate at the age of 65. She also has a memoir out and you'll hear her talk about that and how you can get your hot little hands on it. I want to remind you that Abe's muffins taste great and they will not kill you. They don't have the stuff in there that makes them last on the shelf for a hundred years and makes you wonder, is this gonna kill me? It won't and they taste amazing. They come in all kinds of muffin flavors, but they also have brownies and cornbread. And of course, if you have any questions or concerns about this podcast, or you want to tell me that somebody should be on, or you have a complaint about anything, you can write to me at www.isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place there for you to leave me a message. I will chat with you about just about anything. Keep it clean. But before we go more into that, here is the lovely Kareem McCormick. Green McCormick, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm so glad to have you on today. Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you today. That's great. Um, we both are in places where there's going to be some noise in the background, so we'll just have to include that. Uh, as I tell people, I don't have a recording studio. I have a lovely apartment in Brooklyn. And um, with that comes impromptu motorcycle races and all sorts of other stuff. So life goes I'm on. At, I'm at home with an adorable black poodle who sometimes goes crazy when she hears or sees a car. So we'll deal with her too. That's great. So as I'll probably say in the intro, I've known you for well over a decade now. And I find you fascinating for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I think that what will be helpful to listeners is your journey like every creative person's journey that I've ever talked with or met or befriended has, is not a straight line. You have had uh, a zigzag or all sorts of directional journey like the rest of us. But I think your, um, the things you've accomplished are fascinating. Your journey is interesting and it's full of really fun and entertaining lessons for other people. Um, so I'm just going to get right into it. You are a Jersey girl, right? Are you from New Jersey originally? Originally born and bred in Long Branch, New Jersey. Um, couldn't wait to get out of here when I graduated from college. I was like, I'm never going back and headed to Manhattan, um, where I ended up living for over 30 years. And then here I am back with a house down in Long Branch and actually have fallen in love with it. So it's well, a complete circle. Because we're friends, you've had me and my lovely wife, Holly, over a bunch of times and we've stayed over. 
and we've walked the boardwalk there in Long yeah. Branch, and I am here to testify, it is really beautiful. It is beautiful. And I love the term people use. Well, my mom used to walk, she called it, I'm walking the boards. So ah. more, she'd go walk the boards. I, I think yeah. Very Brooklyn sort of thing to say. I uh, see when I know the term trotting the boards, which is like what actors say about being on stage. But it totally makes sense because there are beautiful boards that make up the boardwalk. And for people who've never been at the beach on the East Coast, and I'm sure they have it on the West Coast and other places, they literally put up pilings and then suspend a sort of uh, suspended walkway above the beach, which is all wood and has beautiful views. And it's literally called the boardwalk. Right, right. right. And I love it. You could see that in Coney Island, which is not that far from where I live, uh, Jones Beach, near where I grew up, and of course, Long Branch and other great shore towns. But you skipped a few things. Yeah. So you were, uh, when you were growing up in New Jersey, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to say that a lot of what you've dealt with in your life has been fashion. And that was something that you fell in love with early, as I understand it. So why don't you tell us, how did that happen? How did you fall in love with fashion? I, I just had a passion for it from a very early age. So I still vividly remember clothes from when I was growing up. Like my mom used to sew clothes for us. And she one time made us a strawberry dress. My sister and I each had a white background with a great big strawberry on it. Then each of us had a slightly different design, but it was really beautiful. And that was something that was really important to me. And as I continued to grow up, oh, there's Jackie. No worries. Sorry. No um, worries. As I continued to grow up, I um, would read Seventeen Magazine and Vogue and whatever magazines I could get my hand on. And as a young kid, I would sit outside and just pick clothes that I wanted to buy. I didn't have the money to buy it, but I wanted to. And then when I did start working, I was like 13 years old at a Chinese restaurant down here. And I saved my money so I could go to the nicest shop in town and buy what was called a designer. It was Ellen Tracy at that point. And I bought two suits. <laughs> I'm like 13 years old. But I wanted a corduroy suit. It was a dress with a pair of pants and teal. And then a golden, like a really beautiful bronzy color that was in canvas with a beautiful jacket and a skirt. Really unusual that that would be what I'd wanted, but I did. So at 13, you were working in a Chinese restaurant. What were you doing there? Oh, I was the cashier girl. So ah. I would take the orders on the phone for takeout. I would, people who were leaving the restaurant would I would take the money. And then I also got to make their special dessert, which was really fun. What was the special dessert? So if you remember in a Chinese restaurant, they sometimes serve dishes on these beautiful silver bowls mm -hmm. with a cover on top. Yes. So the special dessert was six or eight uh, scoops of ice cream, all different flavors. And then you would decorate it with almond cookies and fortune cookies and whipped cream. And I'd create like this beautiful, what I considered this fantastic dessert that would be presented to whoever ordered their special meal. And that was very exciting. I, I'm, 
I'm fascinated by the idea of this uh, little Jewish teenager <laughs> working in a Chinese restaurant because, and I'm sorry, it's just going to play the type, I, you know, I was a little Jewish teenager too. And I worked in a stationery store and then I worked in a music store. But um, my interactions were not with such a diverse cultural situation. I mean, I love Chinese food. <laughs> I don't know how much of that is just our common background or who didn't like, or what we call Chinese food. You know, on the East Coast, we had whatever is known as Chinese food, which who knows how uh, real or accurate that is. Okay. But yeah, but, and you've been to China and we're going to talk about that too. Yeah. But what was that whole experience like? I mean, how did, how were you treated? How did, was it a, an opening of doors to you or was it just a job? Like what was that whole experience? Well, I look back on everything that I did when I was growing up and I never looked at it like, oh, I'm just here to wait, make some money and get, you know, get a pay. I was always there to do a good job. Like I really wanted, I would play games. How quickly could I take the orders on the phone? How many different people could I have, you know, holding on? taking the orders as quickly as possible, getting them ready for them fast, making sure there wasn't a line of people paying. I mean, I loved excitement and, you know, I was just very enthusiastic about it. So I really enjoyed it. I know it sounds corny, but I really, I loved making money, but I also loved the work part of it, you know, and, and just being with people and taking care of people. It was fun. We have that in common, not my first job at the stationery store because I didn't see a lot of glamour in putting together the Sunday Times. Uh, and for people who know what that is, the New York Times and Newsday, which was the Long Island newspaper, in Sunday, on Sundays, they come in these packages of the different sections. And at five in the morning or whatever ungodly hour I did it, I'd oh, open up the stationery store and I would put the piles and then we'd put together the newspapers and, and people would come in to buy cigarettes sorry I didn't mean to kill your grandparents but uh anyway they buy cigarettes and candy and the newspaper it was a Sunday morning ritual before they went to the bakery on or you know a bagel place down the road or whatever and so that was what we did and I had no enthusiasm for that but when I worked in a music store and I was selling musical instruments I really got into that I got into like vacuuming and organizing and having it beautiful so I, I get that but what was it like? Like, were you were your interactions with the Chinese family or people who own that? What was it? Was that new or interesting? Or what was that like? Well, um, now that I think about it, I mean, it was very unusual that there was a Chinese family in town, unlike now, where there's all different ethnic people all over and different ethnic restaurants. There was one Chinese restaurant, it was very popular. So I honestly would see a lot more people from my synagogue that I would be interacting with <laughs> than necessarily the Chinese people in the kitchen. And of I course, like I, knew, I knew the owner. He was very nice. And, you know, he respected me and I really adored him. And, you know, that was a nice relationship. But I really was there to more interact with the customers. Yeah. You know, when you and I and I'm going to put us in the same group, although there there is an, a slight age difference. But growing up on Long Island, we had 
Jews, Italians, and some Irish people. And that was it in my neighborhood. And then some Indians and Koreans came and it was like crazy exotic. And that was the 70s, maybe, you know, mid to late 70s. Before that, it was just Jews and Italians who had all left from the Bronx and Brooklyn, basically. I don't know, was Jersey like that as well? So Long Branch, what makes Long Branch very distinctive and probably one of the reasons I still enjoy it so much is it's really multicultural. So that there's a very strong, uh, yes, a lot. Actually, there are a lot of Jewish people. Italians was very, it was Jewish Italians and then Blacks, but, you know, African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And that was the school that I went to. All of us interacted. And nowadays there's a big Brazilian and Portuguese community. Um, so we have a lot of uh, Hispanic people living in the area as well. So that is unusual because there are some towns where it's not like that. And I really enjoy that about our town. Yeah, I really loved that when I lived in Philly and parts of New York and of course in Brooklyn where I live now. I just feel like, for instance, when I go to the Brooklyn Museum and we'll talk about the fact that I just went to the Dior exhibit, which you have to go to. But um, the Brooklyn Museum is such a museum full of Brooklyn patrons. Like you see everyone coming to our museum and I'm, I'm not gonna start naming different ethnicities or types of people. It's just, it's everyone who could possibly be in Brooklyn is also at that museum. I'm gonna back up too. So you're, so you're reading Vogue, you're sort of a female Stanley Tucci character from Devil Wears Prada, um, dreaming of fashion. You go to college, but you don't go to a fashion school. I know you went to, well, why don't you tell us where you went? So I went to George Washington University. And I'll just say one quick thing, which was my Chinese job was just the beginning of other independent career moves. Because as I got older, I could get more opportunities. And my big break was when I worked for the summer at Bamberger's, which is the original, it was Bamberger's, it was Macy's, New Jersey. And so that's really where I got my fashion fix, if you will. So yes, I remember I Bamberger's. Uh, again, kids, this is like the era of Abraham and Strauss, uh, you know, like, and Gimbel's was still around, if I'm not mistaken. Right. All of those old stores that no longer exist. Um, but the bottom line is that I did go to GW because I wanted to become a doctor of all things. And I happened to be really good at math and science, but my passion was doing something unique and different. So I was a pre-med major and also philosophy. And I look at that and think if my son had said to me he was gonna be a philosophy major, I would have been very upset because what do you do with a philosophy degree? But I enjoyed it because I got to read amazing novels and it was all about thinking and you know, questioning who we are and talking about ethical conversations and logic. And I was fascinated by it. So that really where, was where my passion was. I mean, and then I did you're not very, well, I'm sorry, you didn't get into medicine. I was just gonna say, um, I didn't really apply myself by the junior year. Mm-hmm. I stopped work. I mean, I was still getting C grades with almost no effort, but you need a, you know, all A's to get into medical school. So I had to go to plan B 
And plan B was, let's just see if I can get into a retailer, maybe get an executive training program. And so I interviewed with Macy's and lo and behold, that opened my door into the world of fashion and really never looked back. It was, I went to Macy's with the attitude that I'm gonna be there for six months and then I'm gonna apply again, take my MCATs, which is the test you take to get into medical school. And I remember being on the selling floor of Macy's because I was a manager in Herald Square and I was just in love with it. I could not believe how lucky I was. Back up a second because people who've never been to New York um, have to understand that Macy's and Herald Square is the flagship Macy's. You've seen it on the Thanksgiving Day Parade on your television, but you see the outside of it, on the inside of it. That store is so special. Um, I, I, and I, I used to love it. I, I feel like retail has fallen off and we can talk about that too. But it is a, I mean, it's a historic place. The, L, the excuse me, the escalators are wooden, which is really cool. I've never seen that anywhere else. And it's a beautiful old building with a lot of stories in it. Of course, uh, recently watched Miracle on 34th Street, yes, getting ready for yes. Christmas. And um, so I just want people to have the appropriate reverence for the fact that you were working at um, a hallowed place. World's largest store is what we would say. And so you were a manager on what floor? So I started as a manager on the third floor, which was women's ready to wear. And I have a great story because what I really enjoyed was here I was this 22 year old kid out of college and I was put in charge of a department where I had 15 or 20 different clerks reporting to me. And some of them have been working there for like 30 or 40 years. And it was really important that I learned how to A, earn their respect, but also to respect them. And I had all different ages, all different types of people. And when I joined Macy's, that was back in the late seventies, like 76. And that's when Macy's was really starting. They had been very much a moderate store and now they wanted to become more fashion and higher end. And so they were really working on customer service and just upgrading the entire experience. Actually, the escalators you're talking about, the wooden escalators, had been covered over in the 50s because in those days, old wooden escalators weren't appreciated. So they tried to modernize them and covered them. And then when I was there, they what they called was they refurbished the store. So we went back to the original touches and then really made them beautiful, which I, I just loved it. So my favorite story is I had this clerk, an older clerk, and it's a giant floor. And somebody walked up to her and they said, excuse me, ma'am, where can I find the skirts? And she goes, where can you find the skirts? We have skirts over here. We have skirts over there. Lady, we got skirts over there. This is Macy's, the world's largest store. We have skirts everywhere. <laughs> and I just had to die laughing. And I, you know, I waited until the, and then I went over and I suggested that what you're supposed to do is look at the customer and figure out which department of skirts they would be, would appeal to them. I love that story because it is so New York. 
It sounds like that clerk either lived in the Bronx or Brooklyn. <laughs> That's just, and I can hear it. So thank you for that. I love that story. I will say as much as I love that store, I fell out of love with Macy's, no offense to you, because I feel like they no longer have that attitude about service and a commitment to what you're talking about. You know, people like Nordstrom's, however, fill that role of, you know, ask a question, they'll answer it, they'll take you there. They won't, I've had the experience in several Macy's where I'll ask for something and they'll point into the distance and say, oh, it's over there. And I guess that's fine. I'm an obnoxious guy. I want service. I'll pay extra for service. And yeah. Nordstrom's or Neiman's will go, oh, let me take you to this, whatever. Yeah. So just to explain that in a minute, Macy's used to be independent and we competed with Bloomingdale's. So in those days, service was key. Once Macy's and Bloomingdale's combined and are owned by the same company, the service higher end component stayed with Bloomies and Macy's has become more mainstream again. Hence, you don't get the same shopping experience. But right. I would, I personally love Bloomingdale. So I know you plug uh, Nordstrom's, but Bloomies is my store. And you know what? The truth is, I just don't get to go uptown much for shopping. And I'm one of the bad people that does a lot of online shopping now. I don't know how much of that is I can't stand being pressed up against my fellow men or I'm 6'3 and a little larger and there's just not, I'm not buying anything off the rack, you know? Well, I, I will say that since COVID, I never used to be an online shopper for clothes, but when I really couldn't go into a store, I broke down and started shopping online. And now I do both. I will shop online. I've even gone into the store, seen what I want and went online and then bought it because maybe they didn't have my size in that store. So online, it's like kind of everything is okay these days. Now, how long were you with Macy's? I was with Macy's for about six years and loved it. That was when I, I had never traveled in my life. And my first Macy's trip was to Paris. Paris, London, and Milan, and Florence to develop handbags and small leather goods. And that was like the biggest, most amazing experience. And then I also got to travel to Hong Kong for Macy's. And so that was in like 1980, 1981. Wow. And I got to travel there. And in those days in Hong Kong, we stayed at this very elegant hotel and we got to the airport, the Macy's buyers were picked up in Rolls Royces. Oh my God. I did enjoy. I mean, nothing else was elegant about the trip, but we get picked up in Rolls Royces. We stayed at beautiful hotels. And then we were working. We were in like freezing cold, you know, factories where their bathrooms were horrible and there was no heat, but we loved it. Wow. I, I, so I love Florence. Hmm? Right. I love Florence and I've been there a couple of times. Um, I'm sure you've been there more than a few times. I usually think of Milan when I think of fashion. Um, just as a side note, what is your favorite thing about Florence? If you had to pick one. Oh, the food. That's easy. Oh, <laughs> I, I still, I still remember a restaurant now, granted, I haven't been there in probably 
15 years, but I could actually go there today and walk to that restaurant and sit down and have a meal. I'm sure it's still there. It's Do you just remember about, what it was? Of or course, where it was. I don't remember the name. Uh, well, I, I'm with you. Uh, when I go places with my wife, I remember the restaurants. And in Florence, which we have relatives, so we stay, when we've gone, we've stayed in, right around the Ponte Vecchio, which was amazing. And yeah. there's a place called the Teatro di Sale, which is this like live theater and dining experience. There's a gentleman who owns several restaurants in the area. And um, I can't, if you're listening, I can't recommend it enough because what happens is you don't order anything. You just come in, you sit, and then he opens a little window and he yells, the appetizers are ready in Italian. And everybody gets up and it's like a hundred people. You stand in line, you get all of that. You sit down, they could be like sardines. It could be all sorts of salads or whatever. Then he screams, the chicken's ready or whatever. And then everybody gets up and they get, and the pasta and whatever. And it's all amazing. It's like, it's like a, if a cafeteria was the greatest thing ever, that's mm. what it is. Um, yeah. Food, as you know, and anyone who's met me is a passion. Yeah. But I still want to get more into the fashion because I feel like one of the great things about you is that you've had this fashion journey that a lot of people really would appreciate because there are people listening who are yeah. really into that. So at some point you leave Macy's to do something else. And what was right. that something else? So I, I learned a lot about product development when I was in Macy's because um, I was developing small leather goods and handbags. And I took that experience. And then the next company I went to, like I went to subsequent companies. So I went to Avon products for jewelry and accessory development. And then I went to a smaller company um, that was a handbag firm where they hired me to design a complete collection on my own. And I just, I just was a fine, found a real passion for looking in the industry and seeing what people would want, but didn't exist. Well, I got to stop you because a lot of people think that design is this highfalutin thing because they've seen a couple of magazines or they've seen a couple of documentaries about the most high end people and they think you just put out some kind of art and you hope that somebody pays $20,000 for a dress but the reality in fashion is you are designing a lot of things that need to be practical or even they're in lower price points than $10,000 um, and they need to sell so like a handbag there's a great example or jewelry from Avon you're looking for things that people will buy as gifts or as practical. They'll use that as a daily handbag, but it has to, it can't just be utilitarian, but there has to be a utilitarian element. And there also has to be a consideration of price points. So you're talking about materials and labor. I mean, this is a whole industry that you learn on the go. I mean, that you did learn from literally design to like going to the plants where people were making it. I mean, you, right. you, you can't do that unless you have a passion for it, I think, because you just won't, you won't survive. Yeah, that's true. You won't put up with everything you have to, but I loved, yeah. Like I remember when I was a small leather goods designer, I went to Japan because I would shop in Japan too. They would actually pay us to go, to different countries and we could shop competitive shop isn't that the most how much that's like a dream job like for so a dream many job people. yeah 
So um, I was in Japan and I found a wallet that was an all around zip, which is a clutch, but it had an outside zip, which is very common today. Like every collection has an all around zip clutch. When I saw that in Japan, I had never seen it in the United States. I bought one, I brought it back and I quote unquote was inspired by it. So my, my goal- well, Why do you say quote unquote inspired? In other words, you wanted to copy it. I mean- yes. I okay. knocked it off, but instead of saying knockoff, I would right. say I'm inspired by. And you and wanted to make an homage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so my goal was to find designs that were very expensive in the you know fashion capitals of the world that I could translate into much less expensive looks, so your average woman could afford to buy that. So that you look at an Hermes. Right. So you go to Hermes or Chanel who were probably two of the biggest bag creators with big, big price tags. And then you want to make something that looks like that, but. Well, honestly, I wouldn't, I would not, I would look at Hermes and Chanel, but not really for inspiration because in my opinion, Chanel's got a very distinctive look and everybody who goes there wants the double C's and they right. want the quilting and they want the certain look. And right. Hermes too, it has its look. I would go to look for those unique, unusual designers or just, yeah, smaller, more unusual pieces that wouldn't necessarily be in a brand, you know, a high-end designer brand, but, you know, maybe it's a $400 handbag and I'm going to knock it off and do it for $30 in the United States. Right. So maybe you're looking at a, well, Fendi, Ferragamo, Prada. No, those are no, still even, very high-end designers. High I would be looking in like, um, I would go to Paris and go to Gallery Lafayette, which is not quite the equivalent of Macy's. It's higher end than Macy's, but I would go to the department stores and the small boutiques. You know, like if, it, if we relate to New York, I would be going down to Soho. I would be going in the off the beaten path. I'd be in Brooklyn and Williamsburg. I'd be looking at those tiny little places where you have artisans creating something unusual and different that could inspire me for something new. Gotcha. That's what I'm for. By the way, I read Vogue and GQ and Esquire. Um, I'm the one who subscribes to Vogue, just for the record. My wife does oh, all the cool. food magazines, but I've I've always loved fashion since I can remember. Um, and it's just clear I, I married a woman. I just think I'm, I'm fascinated by fashion. So I knew exactly when you're talking about Chanel and the quilting, I mean, I obviously know the double C's, but that quilting is so, so uh, what is the word? It's, uh, it's just the brand. Uh, the yeah. same way Hermes, it's like they made the Birkin. There's lots of people who are making things like the Birkin, but that's their Hermes thing. And, and right. their, their background is all, they used to do accessories for equestrians, for horses. Right, so and that's why they paddles, have- and the inspiration that led to a whole line of handbags and it's simplicity, but it's beautiful. And then they have the, you know, I mean, we can they go carry on. it through I with mean. their scarves, which are also world-class yes. and well-known. Yes. Yeah. Um, and when you go to that store, that's another store, frankly, that I love to go in. I haven't been in a long time, but it's, mm -hmm. I think it's either on Madison or you would know better than I, it's, it's beautiful. It's a multi-storied store and you walk in and there's just these beautiful wooden walls and displays with everything out and it's just an experience like that's a thing that I think people miss by shopping online going to certain stores is an experience in and of itself 
And I know you love that. And I know you know what I mean. Yeah, um, I do. As a younger person, when I went to college, I first encountered preppies. That was like the preppy time. And I went to Brooks Brothers as a result of that. And I had my first experience of the Brooks Brothers experience, um, you know, which I miss. And unfortunately, that brand has gotten whacked around a lot. Uh, but I digress. Well, I, I have a feeling we could talk about this. And we might talk about this for multiple episodes. But I want to go. I want to bring you. Um, to, so you, so this is how you go from being a buyer or, or rather a manager at Macy's, you, you start to create products yourself and, um, for these different brands, uh, where did you make the transition to creating your own company or was that much later? So actually when I first started my career at Macy's, for some, this is why I know I'm an entrepreneur. I would say, oh, why am I working for a big store? Why aren't I doing this for myself? Someday I want to do this for myself. That's, I was so into that idea that it never occurred to me that was unique to me. I thought everybody working at Macy's had the idea that their dream was to someday create their own brand and their own, their own company. Right. And it wasn't until years later when after having been in several other companies you know again designing and developing products and i was at a company that went chapter 11 and they were giving out pink slips you know because the company was downsizing and so i got my pink slip and i got a nice severance package and i was like now here's my chance now i have money that i can invest in developing my own brand and that's what i did and I was shocked that I was the only person out of the whole company who left the company. I was the only one who really went out and started her own business. And that, that's when I woke up and I was like, that's unique to me. Other people wanna work in companies in big corporations. So I was very lucky to have about 15 years of corporate experience where I worked in very large, very successful companies. And I used that experience so that when I went off on my own, I had an idea of how to create a business and what would be successful and how to make it happen. I don't know, I always, I had like a plan in my head that I wanted to go from being a buyer to being on the other side, which is selling, developing and selling products to buyers. And then I got to learn marketing and strategy and product development and pricing and all those different things I learned while I was working for these much larger, very successful companies, I took that experience. So when I launched my own business, I had connections in department stores, the people that I could call to sell my line to. And I had, I knew what was expected of me as a designer and as a brand new brand. And I just ran with it. So it's funny, you basically unknowingly, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, created for yourself a PhD in becoming a fashion entrepreneur but that wasn't part of a plan was it it's just like I mean you wanted it but and you didn't say I'll go work here and then I'll go work here it's just like those were the things that happened and you took those steps right I saw when I was done working somewhere I usually had like a five to six year window after five or six years I'd be like okay what's next and then I would look and you know make that next position something new that I could learn from 
So it, in a way it was strategic, but yeah, it, it really was. Cause I learned, you know, I learned a lot before I started my own company. But of course you couldn't plan that a particular company would go into bankruptcy. No, of course not. No, I, <laughs> I had no idea. That was not in the game plan. Ironically, when I worked at Avon Products, um, I was one of three people picked to go to Asia to develop 25 new ideas to bring back for Christmas, which I loved because I'm Jewish, but I love Christmas and designing Christmas items was like heaven. And I was really good at it. Like I knew what I wanted for Christmas and what other people would want for Christmas. So they sent myself and two other people to Asia and we developed products in two weeks that when we brought them back, sold $25 million in two weeks. Well, I feel like, and you know, if you disagree with this, by the way, feel free to write me at isthatreallylegal.com. You can go to the website. There's a place to leave me a message. But Jews are great at Christmas. And I'll give you an example. Two of the greatest all-time <laughs> Christmas songs were written by famous Jews. So White Christmas, Irving Berlin. Oh, you didn't know that? And I did not know that. That Christmas song, um, I'll sing one line from it because I don't want to get sued. Chestnuts roasting on an open oh, fire. I love that, that yeah. I believe was written by Mel Torme, the Velvet yeah. Fog, who, of course, was Jewish. Probably, I don't know his real name, but it was probably Mel Tormengensberg or something, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, listen, all you Christians out there, I, enjoy your holiday. I'll be putting up our tree. I married my Shiksa goddess. So Friday, our tree goes up. But you owe us Jews for this. I'm just going to say, uh, we've all been handsomely remunerated for these songs and other accoutrements. But don't forget, we, we help make it happen. Okay, that's that should be enough to either uh, educate or inspire hatred. We'll just move on. Um, and um, what was it that caused you to say, ah, eyeglasses, that's what I'm going to do? Oh. So I ended up, after I left Avon, um, I said, I need to start my own company because I saw the success I was having of things I was developing and I wanted to start my own brand. But I did go one more place and that was a jewelry company, Trafari. And so when Trafari is the company that went chapter 11, but I had five or six years of experience working there already and developing Just products. Just so people know, and the odd chance they don't, Chapter 11 is one of the sections of the bankruptcy code. So that deals with you know, large corporate reorganization, just in case people are curious about that. But anyway, so, mm -hmm. so and usually it ends with you know, people getting a little bit of money of what they're owed, and then the company either gets relaunched or disappears. Right, exactly. Okay. And that happened for the company I was working for. They were, there was a number one brand in jewelry and we were the number two brand in jewelry. And they, we were competing with the number one brand and we thought we would overtake them. And what did they do? They bought us. And so one plus one did not equal three or even two, it equaled one and a half. Right. So we competed, business declined. And the next thing you know, and this happened in this company overall. So that's how they went chapter 11. But I digress. So with my background from jewelry, when I went out on my own, I realized that 
I had just been on vacation and I lost a pair of sunglasses and I had spent a lot of money on these sunglasses and that really upset me because I literally spent, I mean, this was 1990 and I spent $100 on a pair of sunglasses, which was a lot of money. And I lost them within a couple of days. And so I said, okay, I have to buy another pair, but this time I wanna buy an eyeglass chain so that I can keep them and I won't lose them. Lo and behold, there were no eyeglass chains. And then this little light bulb goes off like, all I could find were sport cords. And I did not want a sport cord. I wanted a piece of jewelry to hold my, chain, my glasses. I remember the sport cords because when I was sailing, I always put them on my Ray-Bans because I didn't want to lose them overboard. Exactly, exactly. So there was a tremendous amount of uh, product available at retail that was sporty, but nothing that was dressier. And I, this was just the time when designer eyewear, designer sunglasses were becoming popular. Giorgio Mani was one of the first designers that really went out and did a big deal, you know, made a, a big splash. There were a lot of uh, European designers and so people were starting to spend a couple of hundred dollars on a pair of sunglasses. And the other thing that was happening is that baby boomers, which we're much older now, but in those days we were hitting 40 and baby boomers needed reading glasses. Hence, if you need reading glasses, it's a good idea to have something to hold them because you're constantly losing them and you always need them. So that's when I designed my first line of eyewear eyeglass chains. So I now had eyeglass chains, which was unique and different. Nobody had ever done them before. And I had gone out shopping and I found one eyeglass chain that looked like I wanted. And it was $150 in a high-end specialty store in New York. And I bought it. And I was like, this is my prototype, if you will, of what I want. But I'm going to make this available to retail at $20. Mm. And that's how I, my line was created. And so now I developed a line of eyewear, eyeglass chains that I got into almost every major retailer in the United States, Sunglass Hut, Lens Crafters, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, you, you name it, I was there. And it had your name on it, right? It was Kareen McCormick? Yeah, it was under the brand Kareen McCormick. Well, I mean, you smiled. That still probably doesn't get old, does it? No. The funny thing is, the reason I smiled is that my first choice was not Kareen McCormick. I came up with another name, which I, something like Kareen something, or I don't know, some other version, just my first name. And it would have been very discreet. Not anybody would know who it was. And I worked with an attorney to get it trademarked. And he said, or copyrighted, right? It would be copyright. Uh, actually and trademarked. It was trademarked? Okay. I believe. So he did a search and he said, I'm really sorry, but there's another brand out there that's confusingly similar, similar and you're not going to get this approved. I recommend you come up with another name. I literally had no time because I had to start production. So I called the gentleman who was representing my collection, who was a sales, my sales guy. Then I called him up and I said, look, I got to come up with a name for my line. What should I do? I tried like Kareen's Jewels and it's not working. And he goes, why don't you say Kareen McCormick? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I don't want my name on the product. And he then said to me, um, it doesn't matter what you want. It's what the customer will relate to. And customers really want to know 
A, that it's a designer brand and that there's somebody who's designing it and you should stand behind your product and put your name on it. Well, and to fast forward, it, it really worked for you because you went from just making chains and then you made literally readers and sunglasses. I need to fast forward only because I'm going to okay, run go out ahead. of time because I got a lot more we need to talk about. But sure. you got to the point where you were so well known in the industry that when I first met you back in, I want to say 2009, um, you and maybe it was in 2010 this happened or something, but I saw you on the Today Show. And we were already friends. Right. You went on the Today Show and helped to explain what makes the right uh, shape sunglass for the right type of face shape or, you know, head shape. Exactly. And exactly. I've seen pieces like that in GQ for guys, but you did a great job of talking with, I want to say Hoda and uh, oh, no, Kathy actually, Lee. It was or Regis, was it? It was Regis oh. and Kelly. Okay, I mean, thank Regis, you. Excuse me, it was Regis and Kelly. And so, yes, I worked with Kelly and Michael Strahan and also Regis. That was right before he left. Right. Is Kelly as lovely in person as one would hope? Delightful. She <laughs> would not be nicer because she fell in love with a pair of my sunglasses. And I said, oh, Kelly, please take them. She's of course. Like, oh, absolutely, I won't. She said, I'd much rather go and buy them at retail. Tell me where they're available. Wow. And I was really impressed by that. Yeah. And Regis, Regis, on the other hand, was like, I'll take five. What can you give me? <laughs> I'll take five. Sorry, he's gone. I can't find any glasses. Can I have these? You know? <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. Personalities. Yeah. Um, so at some point, just because I know this story, you were incredibly successful. Um, I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm going quickly through it because it yeah. wasn't an overnight yeah. success. But ultimately, you got purchased by a much larger company, and they made you a vice president. They gave you a chunk of money. Uh, but at some point, you left that industry. And I just want to talk about two things before we ultimately talk about what you're doing now. But you, <clears throat> you've written a book about your experience. And I want to just tell people what it is and how they can get it. But I also want to talk about the fact that you've long had a passion for costume jewelry mm. and that you collected a lot of it and that I believe you're in the process of selling off some of it just because you want to share it because otherwise it's just sitting in a box or I should say a whole lot of boxes. So let's talk about that because I'm fascinated by costume jewelry because as I was growing up, there was a a hierarchy of jewelry. And of course you're like, well, it's Cartier or Tiffany and costume. And I'm using finger quotes was seen as, at least from my point of view, was seen as less than, but then there was this Renaissance where people were like, no, Bakelite, plastic, zirconians, whatever. Some of this stuff is so beautifully designed. It can be appreciated. It doesn't matter that it is not a $200,000 or more item. I mean, they're still not cheap, but can you talk about costume jewelry a little bit for sure. people and why you love it? So you're right. I went into the um, jewelry business in the 80s and I became fascinated with vintage jewelry because Trafari was a brand that is very collectible. Meaning when Trafari was hot back in the 50s and 60s, people, A, they had a designer that they hired from Cartier. 
So when you say high-end jewelry, the whole look of the Trafari collection in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, up until the 80s was look of real is what we would say. They would literally imitate a Cartier look and then sell it. So the Cartier necklace could be, you know, $20,000 or you could buy it for a few hundred dollars from Trafari. And I found a pin from Trafari in Italy that was for sale for $700. And I was blown away that piece of Trafari jewelry was $700 and I ended up buying it because A, it was an inspirational piece, the, the coloring, the design, everything was beautiful. And I just understood the value of this, that this was a, it was an artist, it's an old fashioned way of doing costume jewelry that we don't use those same techniques anymore, unless it's a very unusually high end costume jewelry company. And there's less and less of those. Swarovski, for example, is one of the brands that's more high end. Right. But, so I just fell in love with that jewelry and I, I became very passionate and I started collecting it. So every time when I'm traveling around the world, I would always go into vintage stores or even um, thrift shops. And I found the most amazing pieces of jewelry in ship thrift shops. You know, like I remember being in Cape Cod and buying these spectacular rhinestone bracelets for like $50. And I'm and I put them on my, I now have an Etsy store, Korean very vintage, and they're for sale for $400, $600. And the reason is A, they're really unique, and B, I love them so much that I will not part with them unless somebody is willing to pay five or six hundred dollars. And they're worth it because they're that spectacular. So so yeah, I became very passionate. And ironically, back in those days, I found a pair of sunglasses that I fell in love with. And they were called um, convertible glasses. I didn't know this, but back in the 50s and the 60s, when we were still little, um, the convertibles was a big thing in the American culture. And women wanted to wear glasses that could hold their hair off their face so they wouldn't blow in their face. So they had glasses that had these wings on the side of them, much like the wings in the back of like a Cadillac, those type of fins. Right. But it was on the side of the glasses and they were aluminum and they were spectacular. But at that point, I think they were like $100, $200. And I'm like, I can't afford to buy that, that sunglass. Like, why would I be buying that? I'll buy a piece of Trafari jewelry, but I'm not going to buy sunglasses. Right. So I had an affinity for sunglasses before I ever got in the business. And to this day, I am still looking for convertible sunglasses because I would buy them in a heartbeat if I saw them. Isn't that funny? Yeah. 30, 40 years later, I'm still looking. No, I That's get it. I, I've had a couple of guitars I loved and I traded away and um, I kick myself because one of them probably, you know, quadrupled in value um, and, and also was just a great guitar. But you go, you, we do things that we sometimes wish we hadn't or don't do things we wish we had. Um, so you've written about your life as an entrepreneur. I know that you published a book. What is it titled and where can people find it? 
It's titled From Living Room to Boardroom, How I Launched and Sold a Multi-Million Dollar Business. And you can find it on Amazon. You still are driven. Like you are not retired and you're not interested in being retired. No, not, a, I, not even a little. Is I don't even know. I'm just going to ask. Is it just because you love to work or what? what's the story? Yeah, because... When I left my company, um, it was 2017, and the first goal was I wanted to write a book. So I literally spent the next six months, six months to a year. I had written parts of the book while I was still employed, but I had saved the bulk of it for when I left the company. I knew someday I was going to leave, and that's when I was going to write my book. So I wrote the book and ended up publishing it within six months of leaving the company. And that was, that was like a labor of love. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I wrote it because I, I felt that I had a story to tell. Um, first, I wanted to just not forget everything that had happened to me in my life, because there's a lot of really funny stories that happen. Um, and I also wanted my son, Adam, to know exactly what had gone on in my life, because he was two when I started my business. And I started it in the apartment. So we launched, <laughs> when I launched my business, I was living in an Upper East Side co-op and shipping products like 70 cartons at a time to Macy's out of the Upper East Side. And then after a year or two, the co-op board came after me and said, we're really sorry, but that is not allowed. And I was like, ah. all right, ah. I understand. I, by the way, just for full disclosure for everybody, I'm also friends with Adam, your son, and had brunch with him and his boyfriend uh, on Sunday. Uh, oh, really? I saw oh, his cool. new apartment, and it's beautiful. And um, yeah, so I, you know, it's very funny. Um, I've certainly had lots of people on the show that I don't know personally, but I also do have quite a few that I do. And whenever I have someone on this show that I know personally, I find out how much I really don't know about their story, you know, and I'm, yeah. and I love learning about my friends and they're all like yeah. you, amazing people with amazing stories. And um, right. it just makes me fall in love with my friends more, you know, for yeah. the things that they've done. It's very cool. Yeah. Um and now, because we're running out of time, I just want to... So wait, how can people get this book? Can they go online they, to get they it? They go or? on Amazon. So look up Corrine McCormick uh, from Living Room to Boardroom. Got it. Now, you wrapped up that chapter of your life. As my wife right. always says, we all have many chapters. And um, sometimes that chapter is like 300 pages long, like a, a long-term marriage. Sometimes there's a person you meet, you're sorry you did, something happens, that chapter is one sentence. But right. they're all chapters and they're different. But now you've started, fairly recently, you started a new chapter of being so a real estate. About why did, you know, do I want to retire? So I, oh, yeah. that was, in my opinion, writing the book and going out and meeting friends for lunch and dinner was retirement. <laughs> and I really wanted to get back to work because that was not enough. And I tried a couple of different things. I was, you know, doing some business consulting in the optical industry. And I just, it just didn't, it didn't ring my bell, if you will. It wasn't my, my thing. 
And I am very passionate about real estate. Like when you read my book, you'll understand that part of the way I funded my business was my the co-op we bought when we were poor um, and put every penny we had into our co-op and lived, you know, like Chinese food was a big treat. That's how we just didn't have any money. Um, but we ended that apartment kept appreciating. And the more it appreciated, we were able to pull money, you know, refinance, mm-hmm. use that money to put it into the business. So I became really passionate about real estate and we have personally bought and sold real estate and fortunately done very well. And I just, you know, I, I we had bought this house down in New Jersey. So the house that I grew up in, when my parents passed away, um, my husband and I bought it from the estate so that it was our house. You know, I have a sister, you can't just take it. <laughs> and um, you'd be surprised some people try. As an attorney, um, I can tell you, but you did everything on the up and up. And I'm sure yes. everybody appreciates that. Yes. <laughs> and yes. by the way, lovely home. Like I said, I've stayed over, I've had several meals there. Uh, it's really, and you've done a lot with it. You, you also have an eye for how to uh, update things so that they're comfortable, but you still keep the charm. And what I love about our renovations, because I get really into renovations, it's like the fashion that I develop. I look for things that are new and different and like on the cutting edge. And sure enough, what I put into my house we did it 10 years ago and it's still very contemporary and new and fresh 10 years later. I so agree. That's the type of things I like to do. And I use that when I go and work. So bottom line about, I guess, prior to even leaving my company, I knew that I really wanted to do real estate. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to sell real estate in New Jersey at the beach? Because driving along here, I love the homes. I love driving in this area. I love seeing the ocean. Um, and then going into people's houses, I am nosy. I do. I'm curious. What do they look like? How much do they cost? How much are they selling for? I get into all that stuff. And um, I got to, you know, I, I launched my career two years ago in real estate and it's been amazingly successful. It's so exciting. I, I'm very proud of you. I'm very happy for you. Um, and as you know, Holly and I renovated our place. I still can't yeah. believe we haven't had you over yet to see it because yeah. you got to. Um, although to you've seen dying. pictures, you can see my kitchen behind I can me. See but it looks really beautiful. Yeah, really thank nice. you. Um, is there? We've got to wrap it up. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you're like, oh, I really wanted to say this, or well, I wanted? I guess to- the one thing that I want to say is that I launched. I think people, we all are living longer lives, at least we hope to live longer lives. And I started a career quite young. And then I launched my company at 39 years old. And I thought I was old. I couldn't believe that I waited till 39. And I wasn't, you know, because Oprah did her, you know, entrepreneurs over 40, under 40. And I was like, shit, excuse me. I missed out. Like I'm 39. And look, I missed it. So I thought I was really old and now I'm 67 and I started a brand new career in real estate. And I guess the only thing I want to say is that people really do need to keep finding what they're, what they're passionate about in life and going out and making careers out of it and, you know, enjoying themselves because I'm not going to enjoy just sitting around my house and 
doing nothing or it will cost me a lot of money to do what I want to do, which would be travel. And I don't know, I really would much rather be working than I love, I love working. I love meeting people. I just get a real excitement from it. I'm, I'm with you. I think that uh, I don't know what I do with myself and you and I, uh, we met back in 2009 when we were doing seminars together with Ariel and Shia King and we still do those. And I feel like we have uh, learned to access our passion and really have a lot more fun than we used to. I, I'll yep. speak for myself, but um, to cut through some of the things that used to prevent us from accessing our passion. Yep. And um, I feel like you're a great example for women, for entrepreneurs, for people who think, well, I can't do it. You know, as you said, you started a whole new career at 67 and you, 65, uh, 65, sorry. <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, you are not a low energy person. You are a high energy person. Um, so I appreciate that about you. And I just appreciate you. And I'm so glad we got a chance to talk today. Kareem McCormick, thank you so much for being on. Is that really legal with Eric Rubin? It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. This is fun. Wasn't she amazing? She is amazing. And I urge you to go to Amazon and get Corinne McCormick's book. Um, I also urge you to eat Abe's muffins. Uh, you can buy a bunch of boxes. Just make sure you don't keep them around too long because they're natural. They're fresh. They don't have a bunch of crap in them. And they're allergen-free. Your kid will eat it and not mutate into some creature. Really, Abe's muffins. They have brownies. Did I mention that? Um, I can't keep them in the house or I would weigh 400 pounds because they're that good. I can't stop eating them. Anyway, are you taking care of yourself and are you taking care of your neighbors? Please get your shots. Get your booster. I got my booster. It felt fantastic. It was like a first kiss. I'm telling you, you need to get that booster right away and take care of yourself and your friends. Any questions or concerns, go to www. Is that really legal.com? I am here for you. Be there for each other. Happy New Year, and uh, we'll keep rocking this podcast. So have a great 2022. Bye bye.